Power in the Blood. A John Jordan Mystery, Book One, by Michael Lister. Performed by Kyle Tate. Seven. The following morning, I stood at my desk in my chapel office inside Potter Correctional Institution, a stack of mail and the package containing my new computer in front of me. Moving the unopened mail to one side, I ripped into the box and extracted the computer inside, releasing a flurry of small packing peanuts as I did. At that moment, Warden Stone walked in without knocking. Every muscle in my body grew tense. Chaplain, I need to speak with you for a moment, he said as he closed my office door behind him. He made no attempt to hide his annoyance at the floating styrofoam swirling around him as he removed two handfuls of packing peanuts from the chair across from my desk before sitting in it. Stone was always dressed impeccably in expensive suits that looked to be tailored, and he always took great care to protect them. Had he been aware of the sweaty, soiled inmate uniforms that normally occupied the seat, he probably would have left the peanuts in place. As I sat down, an envelope on top of my lopsided stack of mail slid off, revealing an inmate request form from Ike Johnson. Stunned, I quickly opened my center drawer and placed it inside. Before he started talking, Edward, not Ed, Stone, paused to clean his charcoal wire-rimmed glasses. Like everything he owned, they looked expensive. As he removed them carefully from his face and wiped them with a spotless white silk handkerchief bearing his initials in bold black block letters, he treated them like they were costly jewels. As I watched him, I realized that the glasses, like everything he owned, seemed so expensive because he treated them that way. As he made these exact intentional motions, I had a chance to really look at him for the first time. He was much leaner than I had thought. I had seen skin that was darker than his, but not by much. He had all the African features of a man from Nigeria. His nearly hairless skin was smooth and had a slight sheen about it. His movements were slow, but not hesitant, more deliberate and economic than anything else. He knew exactly what he was doing and the precise amount of energy required to do it. He did everything as if it were the most important thing he would do that day. Edward Stone's minimalist actions and conservative controlling policies reminded me of the effects poverty and fear and fear of poverty have on people. No matter how successful they become, they always keep plenty in reserve for fear they will have to do without again. My grandmother, a child during the Great Depression, had been the same way. How are you? he asked. With what happened yesterday? I nodded. I'm fine. Thank you. That was bad. Have to be an idiot to try to escape. But to try it in that manner, you'd have to be suicidal. Perhaps he was, I said. Maybe. I don't know. But that's what I want to find out. The thing is, his name came up in another matter that we're considering investigating. Really? Yes. I had not put much stock in the earlier reports. But now... I am not so sure. Thing is, we have a situation that I need your help with. I waited. It won't be easy, and it's totally out of the purview of your job. But I honestly do not have anyone else I can turn to. I nodded encouragingly. 
I want you to help the IG with the investigation into what happened yesterday. I started to object, but he stopped me with a single authoritative wave of his hand. I conducted a thorough background check on you long before I ever decided to approach you with this, and I know that you and the IG don't care for each other very much, but there's no other way. Even if you could convince me to work with him, you'll never get him to work with me. I've already taken care of that through the secretary. His secretary? No, the secretary of the department, he said with an amused smile. So like you, he really doesn't have a choice in this matter. But your father being the sheriff here doesn't hurt. But even if he weren't, you're exactly who I need to take care of this. I know you used to be a cop. Know you worked the Atlanta child murders. I know you've studied criminology. It's even rumored you were the one who killed the stone-cold killer. As impressive as that is, I said, trying to sound only mildly sarcastic. Wouldn't the institutional inspector be a better choice? To be completely honest, I don't trust Pete Fortner. Ordinarily, I would have the colonel assist in this kind of investigation, but he'll be away from the institution in training for the next few weeks. Why don't you trust Fortner? I asked. First of all, I need to know that you'll do it. I thought about it. I had been trying to leave the obsession and violence and negative energy of homicide investigations behind me, but I could feel the strong pull of what was being offered to me. It was seductive. I'm a chaplain now, I said. That comes first. But if I can do both, I am willing. I will. But I will not work closely with the IG, because I don't trust him. Okay. The reason I'm asking you is because Daniels is Fortner's boss. Fortner's looking for a promotion, and he'd sacrifice my institution to get it. I don't trust the two men together. You, on the other hand, Daniels hates. You're the best man for the job. At that moment, my phone rang. Good morning, Chaplain Jordan, I said into the receiver. Chaplain, this is Officer Jones in the control room. Is the warden in your office by chance? No, not by chance. He leaves nothing to chance. I handed Stone the phone. He took it without comment or expression. Stone? Yes. Okay, send him over to the chapel right away. He handed me the receiver, and I hung up. Your new partner has arrived. Before he gets here, I just want to make clear your responsibilities. You are to assist him in the investigation in any way that you can. But I also want you looking out for the institution and its administration, and report to me every step of the way. The front door to the chapel opened, and the warden stood to open my office door for the inspector. I remained seated. When the inspector walked in, he and Stone introduced themselves to each other. Tom Daniels was 55, but looked 65. His battleship gray eyes matched his hair, which still showed no sign of receding. When they had finished shaking hands, Stone sat down again, pulling his pants legs up slightly and crossing his legs. He then steepled his hands together in front of his face, as if praying, the tips of his fingers at his lips. Daniels just sort of collapsed into his chair. Tom Daniels had the look of an alcoholic. I knew, being an alumnus myself. His face was red and swollen, 
his nose pink and puffy, spider-webbed with little blue broken veins. Though an obvious alcoholic, he was a high-functioning one. He worked hard, presented well. Yet he was often late and didn't produce the results he once had. And though he made a good salary and lived modestly, he was plagued by financial problems. He was dressed in gray slacks that matched his hair and eyes, a white shirt that matched his pale skin, and a red tie that matched his bloodshot eyes. The effect of alcoholism on Tom Daniels was severe, but its effects on his family were devastating. Though never beaten nor abused, his wife and daughter had been neglected. His daughter, though a teetotaler, functioned as a dry drunk and an enabler. She lacked confidence and any idea how to relate to men in general, and a husband in particular. She attracted, and was only attracted to, alcoholics. I knew. I had married her. I believe you know our chaplain, John Jordan, Stone said. Yeah, I know him, Daniel said, without as much as a glance in my direction. As I'm sure you're already aware, he will be assisting you. He grew up here and knows many of the employees of the institution. I had been away for so long, it felt like I didn't know nearly as many people as I used to, and many of those employed by the prison commuted from other communities. I've been told I don't have a say in the matter, Daniel said irritably. So has he, Stone said. Daniels cut his cold, dull eyes in my direction and smirked. What about the institutional inspector? He'll help too, but you were to limit his knowledge and access. You better have a damn good reason for that, Daniel said. I do? When he didn't explain, Daniel said, Oh yeah? What's that? A good reason. No, I mean, what's the reason? Stone smiled. You have copies of all the files and reports that I have. You know as much about it as I do, so I'm going to let you brief Chaplain Jordan. At the end of the day, report back to me. Both of you. Stone then stood and left, without another word. Before we even begin this little exercise in futility, Daniels began, I want to get a few things straight. I don't like you. I've never seen a more hypocritical sight in all my life than you in a clerical collar. Except maybe it makes you look like the little candy-ass faggot you really are. This is my investigation, and you better stay the hell out of my way. I'll be watching you, waiting for you to fuck up. When you do, and I know you will, I will personally bury your ass. Deep. Eight. Dostoevsky said the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. I often thought about that as I entered PCI each day. At times, I believed the condition of our prisons spoke well of our civilization. In some ways, we as a country take great care of those we incarcerate. Of course, whether most of them should be incarcerated in the first place is another matter. The fact that convicted felons don't lose their freedom of religion. The fact that I was employed by the state to ensure the guarantee of that right. The fact that I was here to counsel inmates and help them deal with crises, both inside prison and back at home. 
all spoke well of our approach to imprisonment. Other times, I was disheartened by the inhumanity and incivility that I witnessed. There's no question that mass incarceration, particularly as it affects African-American men and other impoverished minorities, is out of control in our culture. The prison industrial complex largely runs on the injustice of our justice system. Yet, once we take custody of inmates, we by and large take care of them. Of course, there is abuse. Of course, there is neglect. But from what I witnessed on a daily basis, these are largely isolated incidents, the abuses of power by isolated individuals, rather than a systemic problem within our prison system. One of the ways we care for the incarcerated is by the way we classify each according to his crime and custody level, his skills and abilities, and his psychological and medical needs. In a prison like PCI, there are all types of inmates, those who received a DUI and resisted arrest, those who sexually abused children, those who committed murder, rape, or theft, the last usually in the pursuit of drugs. There are inmates who are dangerous, and others who are themselves in danger. Putting all these various individuals in one institution is a very precarious endeavor. Some inmates are violent, others are not. Some are escape risks, some you'd have a hard time getting to leave. Others need close medical or psychological supervision. And all must be assigned a job that they are qualified to do, even if it's just picking up trash. The department responsible for giving inmates a security evaluation and a job assignment, as well as determining whether or not they are a risk or at risk, is classification. Since Daniels made it clear he didn't want me working with him, and because the feeling was mutual, I decided to conduct a little inquiry of my own, beginning with a classification officer named Anna Rodden. Anna, who I had been in love with since childhood, was my older sister Nancy's best friend all through school. Anna, I said after tapping on her door. She was seated behind her desk wearing a sleeveless white silk blouse and a fire engine red skirt, with the matching jacket draped over the back of her chair. Her long brown hair was gathered in a single long ponytail at the nape of her neck, held by a red and white bow. The white of her shirt made her olive skin look even darker. She was dark in other ways, too. As she looked up from her work, I was again amazed at the depth of her seemingly bottomless brown eyes. John, she said, sounding happy to see me. I loved the way she said my name. Come in, she continued. How are you? I heard what happened yesterday. I was just about to call you. I'm okay. You sure? I nodded. How are you? Had better days. Escape attempts are difficult enough, but when the inmate gets killed... Was he one of yours? I asked. She nodded. Everyone from central office on down wants to know why I didn't know he was an escape risk. I nodded and frowned. Had I taken this job in part so I could see her every day? Would I continue to do it once she left? She was in the final stages of finishing her law degree at Florida State and would soon be one of the state's toughest prosecutors. What brings you my way today, she said. Stone has asked me to look into what happened yesterday. Before I had finished my sentence, she was shaking her head. That's the one thing I won't help you with. I can't.
She had witnessed firsthand the darkness and violence my relentless and obsessive investigative techniques had brought into my life. I know you haven't forgotten what Atlanta was like, she added. So you must just be blocking it out. But I can't. I understood and appreciated her concern. But things were different now. I was different. I was older. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't in a bad relationship. I had moved to Atlanta in 1986 to work the Atlanta child murders. I had only been 18 at the time. Most of the work I had done on that case and the stone-cold killer case that followed was in my early 20s. It was now 1995. I was 27 years old, far, far better equipped to deal not just with homicide investigations, but life itself. Or so I believed. This is nothing, I said. A simple... She let out a harsh laugh. Nothing is ever simple with you, John. I really think this can be. I'm just taking a quick look into it. I thought with you and Merrill here to keep me honest, I'd... A quick knock at her door stopped me. It was Tom Daniels. Yes, she said, as he stuck his head in the door. My name is Inspector Daniels. Your mother named you Inspector, she said. Sort of limited your career options, didn't it? Cute he said. I think you know. I'm the Inspector General of the DOC. What can I do for you, Inspector General? It's a private matter. Can I talk to you alone? She shook her head. Fine, he said. We can do this in front of... When he came around and saw it was me, he shook his head and said, should have known. Are you following me? I said, ignoring me. He dropped into the seat next to mine. I'm looking into the death of the inmate yesterday, he said to Anna. Ike Johnson. Is he yours? Is he my what? Is he your, was he assigned to you? Are you his classification officer? I was. What can you tell me about him? She shook her head. Not much. Before yesterday, I would have sworn he wasn't an escape risk. Could be something new going on with him I don't know about yet. You should probably ask his pimp. Who's that? The chaplain? She frowned. So childish. And what were you being earlier? He asked. All I need is a little information. Why are you being so damn difficult? Who's his pimp? Inmate named Jacobson. What's Jacobson like? Pretends to be crazy, which he is but not in the way he pretends to be. He acts loony, but he's truly dangerous. Okay, thanks. I'll talk to him. What about Johnson's family situation on the outside? Who'd he have? Grandmother who raised him, and an aunt that I know of. No girlfriend? He didn't like girls. Never has. Faggot on the outside, not just in here. Use language like that again, and you won't get any more information from me. I don't care who you are. Sorry, I just didn't mean to give offense. Sorry. What I meant was, was he a homosexual for real, and not just for convenience, the way some of them are in here? Ike was gay. If you're asking me if I'm aware of a lover he would have tried to escape for, I am not. He did have four visits from a... Don Hall, when he first got here, but that was over a year ago. 
He jotted something down in a small notebook and said, Anything else? I've just started looking, she said. I, like I said, I didn't think he was an escape risk. Obviously, I missed something. He stood, withdrew a card from his pocket, and placed it on the desk in front of her. This is an official investigation of a death within this prison. A death in which you are at least partly to blame. Call me the moment you come up with anything else. Don't tell the chaplain or anyone else. Only me. No matter what it is. Understand? She nodded without saying anything. And don't discuss my case or anything about it with anyone but me. Not the chaplain, not your mama, no one. Without waiting for her to respond, he turned and walked out of the office, closing the door a little harder than was necessary, but not hard enough to be overly obvious. She shook her head and narrowed her eyes at me. Know how to pick him, don't you? What a... That was your ex-father-in-law, wasn't it? She said. I frowned and nodded. I never liked Susan, she said. Now I know why. What an ass. You two are working on the same case? We're supposed to be working it together. You don't seem to together. I smiled. That's about as together as we're ever going to get. I've changed my mind about helping you with the case. Hell, I'm going to help you solve it before that smug, obnoxious ass does. But I'm going to be keeping a close eye on you. If it gets to, it won't. So, how can I help? Do you know for a fact that Jacobson was Johnson's pimp? As much as you can know such things for facts inside here, they were both assigned to me. What was his job assignment? Not pimp, I can tell you that. I meant Ike Johnson. Outside grounds, she said, seeming not to catch how odd that was. Inmates who worked outside of the institution did so because they were deemed to be a low escape risk. It had to do with their custody, their release date, and past history. Outside the gate, I asked. You sure? She nods. I know. He works outside the gate five days a week, but he tries to escape in the trash truck on his day off? The vast majority of escapes occurred while an inmate was already outside the prison. Work assignment, court hearing, transport, medical procedure. Breaking out of a maximum security prison was extremely difficult to do. Nearly impossible. What else can you tell me about him? I asked. As you can imagine, he spent a lot of time in confinement for physical contact with other inmates, and sometimes drug use. By physical, you mean sexual contact, right? Sure wasn't for fighting. You see how small he was? He had fit in a garbage bag, but before this moment, I hadn't realized how small that meant he had to be. Skinny, too, she added. He had HIV and AIDS. I thought about being covered in his blood. She must have seen something in my eyes. You came in contact with his blood, didn't you? Contact is one word for it. Swimming, drowning are a couple of others. The chances that you could be are so small. Are you worried? Didn't even know to be until a minute ago. Don't be. Get tested just for peace of mind. But don't worry. I'm sure you're absolutely fine. I nodded. 
Okay. I'm not really worried, I lied. Good, because you're fine. But if you get worried and need to talk. We were quiet a moment, and I thought about what happened yesterday in light of what I now knew about Johnson. If he really wanted to escape, I said, thinking out loud. He'd have tried it while outside for his job, right? He sat there in that bag and heard what the officer was doing to all the other bags. He knew what was coming. You're thinking suicide, she said. Considering the possibility. But there are much better ways to commit suicide. Maybe it was murder. Murder, she said. Everybody here knows how the garbage is checked before it leaves the front gate. It'd be a great way to hide a murder. Or have one committed. So somebody kills him and puts him in the garbage bag, so he'd be dumped somewhere, or get stabbed and it would look like he was trying to escape? I think if it were an escape attempt, he'd have lost his nerve there at the end. And maybe even if it were suicide. Maybe the officer had been paid to miss that bag, she said. That's good. But if he was, that meant he knew the inmate was in there, which meant he knew he was killing him, which means he deserves an Oscar for the performance he gave. Hard to fake shock like that. What can you tell me about Jacobson? He was in the infirmary with Johnson on Monday night. What? Yeah, and they had a fight. Tuesday morning, Jacobson was taken to confinement and locked up, and Johnson, well, you know what happened to him. What time was he placed in the box? Log indicates it was around 6.30 in the morning. Of course, those logs are never exact. No, but it's probably close to the actual time, which means he could have killed him and bagged him before he was taken away. Maybe. I don't know. Seems to me that whoever did the deed would have to actually load the bag on the truck. Otherwise, it'd be too heavy. Obvious a body was inside, wouldn't it? It may not mean anything. But then again, he was locked up before the shift change. And yet, it was close to the time of the shift change. Too close. What do you mean? She asked. From what I've seen, if something occurs that close to the shift change, the officers leaving save it for the officers just coming in. That's true, she said. They definitely do. Nine. Potter Correctional Institution was its own little world, a society of captives and captors, with its own social order, classes, economy, and laws. Neither captive nor captor, I wasn't just an outsider. I was a stranger in limbo between the two groups. I needed a guide into the first group, and the first and most obvious choice was the inmate assigned to the chapel to assist me, Mr. Smith. I was told during orientation not to call any inmate Mr. or Sir, but I made an exception for Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith was an old black man whose back was slightly bent, causing him to bow forward a little as he walked. Life had bent, but not broken this man. As he walked with his head down, a small bald spot could be seen right at the crown of his head. He was raised in the old Southern school of repression, in an era when a black man was to be seen and not heard. Seen working, that is. Mr. Smith and I had developed a good rapport since I had been at PCI. After returning from Anna's office, 
I decided to ask him to explain a few things to me about life on the inside. But when I reached my office, there were several inmates waiting to see me. On an average day, I had contact with over a hundred inmates, twenty of whom usually came to my office for some form of crisis counseling. Some inmates actually came to my office out of a desire for rehabilitation, recovery, and spiritual growth. Most came over trivial matters relating to their jobs or bed assignments, or wanting to use my phone. Chap, I was wondering if I could use your phone. Inmate Jones, an elderly, slow-talking, and slow-moving black man said when we were seated in my office. My aunt is real sick. I need to call my peoples. I'm sorry, I said. As you know, the department will only allow me to place a phone call for you in the event of the death or serious illness of an immediate family member. Even then, I have to verify it by an outside official, like a doctor or funeral director. Just this once? I really need to talk to her. She raised me, you know. Is she at home or in the hospital? She at home? The only thing I can do is give you a phone pass that will allow you to call from your dorm. I'm sorry. I opened my desk drawer to retrieve a phone pass form. As I did, I saw the inmate request from Ike Johnson. In my discomfort and distress of dealing with Daniels, I had forgotten about it. I quickly closed the drawer. She got a block on her phone, he said. If he perceived the contradiction in what he was asking for with what he was saying, he gave no indication. If she really wanted to hear from him, why would she have a block on her line? I often wondered how inmates could tell me with a straight face how close they were with their families, and yet admit that their families had gone to the trouble of placing a block on their phones that prevented them from calling. If she has a block on your phone, she obviously doesn't want to be called. Have you tried writing her? He stood up angrily and stormed out. As soon as he was gone, I opened my desk drawer again and pulled out Ike Johnson's request. The triplicate inmate request forms are how inmates ask for help from staff members in prison. From Ike Johnson to Chaplain Jordan. Dear Chaplain, sir, I really need to talk to you very soon. Can I come to your office tomorrow? It's real important. I'm scared I'm either going to try to escape or kill myself and don't know who to talk to. Sir, you my only hope. May God bless you, Chaplain, sir. Unlike any other request I had ever received, this one was typed. Most inmates didn't have access to typewriters, and the ones who did were only allowed to use them for official reasons, such as legal work. I glanced up at the date. It was dated the day he was killed. I should have received the request yesterday, but his death and my involvement in it had delayed me getting it. I reread the request several times. The type had several distinguishing marks. The letter T was missing the right side of the crossbar, the letter O was missing the bottom curve, and the letter A was much darker than the rest of the type. The typewriter that produced this request shouldn't be difficult to find. While I was examining the request, Mr. Smith tapped on the door. Come in, I said. Brother Chaplain, sir, there's two more to see you now. Mr. Smith's blue uniform was always neatly pressed and buttoned all the way to the top. Do you know what they want? I asked. 
One say he didn't get the Father's Day card we sent him. The other one wants you to make copies of his legal papers. Sounds like things that can wait a few minutes. Come in and sit down, and let's talk for a minute. He slowly swaggered in and took his seat. I done something wrong, sir? He asked. Not at all. I need your help. Okay, sir. Do what I can. He was slumped so far down in his chair as to be nearly horizontal, his head hanging to the side as if too heavy to hold upright, and his long arms dangling on either side of the chair. I'm still trying to understand how things work on the compound, and wondered if you could explain a few things to me. Like what? he asked, caution and suspicion creeping into his voice and body language. How often do you hear inmates talking seriously about trying to escape? Not many ever say anything like that to me. Too hard. Chances are they couldn't make it. Not worth it. This place harder to get out of than it look. Anyone ever escaped from here before? I asked. He had been here almost the entire three years this institution had been open. No, sir. Not as I know of. Couple from the work camp did, but they caught them lickety split. Any thoughts about what happened yesterday? Nigga a fool. Everybody know what they do to them bags. Must have wanted to die. So you don't think it was a serious escape attempt? He shook his head. No, sir. Either he want to die or somebody want him dead. What's the drug and alcohol situation on the compound? They's those who have it. They's those that would love to have it but can't afford it. They's those who do anything for it. Lot of it on the compound? No, sir, not a lot, but more than you'd think. Homemade hooch, buck, pills, grass, coke, meth. How does it get in? Most of the liquor is homemade. Inmates in food services or the chapel sneak juice or old fruit and sugar back down on the pound. Mix it up, let it ferment. You mean inmates have stolen our communion juice to make buck? Oh, yes, sir. Some go to church on communion night just cause of it. They hold it in their mouth, spit it in a pill bottle or bag they stole, until they get back down to the dorm and empty it into an old can or plastic bag. Clerk worked here before me used to steal it. Sell it down on the pound. What about the drugs? Come in during visitation or staff bring it in. Some inmate family members sneak it in and slip it to them while they visit, or leave it in the bathroom and the orderly get it when he clean up. They also officers, staff, would bring it in to sell. Is it expensive? Hard to get? I asked. He nods. Sex? Cookies, cards, smokes, favors, beat up or kill someone for it. No cash involved? Most everything done on trade. Inmates say, you do this for me or that for me, and I give you my canteen. They pay. It just ain't with money. If money involved, it happen on the outside. Inmate family or friend pay a staff member out there to bring something in here. What about sex? I asked. I heard Ike Johnson was a working girl. He nods. It's just like on the street. These punks, pimps, sisters, and the gay and straight inmates would use their services. Punks are the real gays. 
They gay before they come in here. Some have pimps what look after them. Hire them out. Sisters are only into each other. They got no protection. Don't hire out. They just in love, I reckon. We were both silent a moment. You said some straight inmates use the services of some of the prostitutes, I said. He nods. They straight on the outside, just can't get none in here. So they have to make do. But they only pitch, never catch. In here, they a big difference between pitching and catching. We were silent again, and I mused about the equivocations of pitching and catching in the social order of Potter Correctional Institution. Some of the punks wears women's stuff, he said. Like what? I asked. Panties? Pantyhose? Perfume? Shit like that. Where do they get it? Buy it off female offices. Even trade some of them sex for it. Funny, ain't it? Gay guy giving sex to women's in exchange for girly stuff for they man. It was certainly among the more ironic things I'd encountered in here. Thing you gots to remember about this place. If an inmate do something, most of the time it because officer or staff allow him to. Most of the inmates trust you, don't they? I said. I got respect. Not the same thing. Most inmates don't trust no one. They life say they can't trust no one. Not even the chaplain. You got's mine. Probably get a few others. Not many. If an inmate wanted to escape, could an officer be bought to help? Probably not. They sell you dope. Maybe turn they head when you beat up a punk. But they wouldn't help you get out. Too risky. How well did you know Ike Johnson? Not really at all. What about Jacobson? Yeah, I know him. Watch your back round him. Some people say he crazy, but he ain't. He dangerous. Lot of inmates say they kill before. Most of them ain't. But Jacobson for real. I appreciate you talking to me, I said. Someone else you should talk to, he said. Old homosexual on the pound. Say very little, but he know a lot. What's his name? Don't know his real name. Everybody just call him Grandma. 10. Ike Johnson had spent the last night of his life in the infirmary. Jacobson had been there too. The medical building, like every other building at PCI, was gray cinder block with light blue trim. It housed dental and classification also, and its waiting room was always filled with inmates. When I entered the small, crowded, but quiet waiting room, I was presented with a choice. The locked door to the left led to classification and psychology. The locked door to the right to medical, dental, and pharmaceutical. I chose right, away from Anna, whom I would rather be visiting again. And as I unlocked the medical department door with my key, I wondered how many other staff members carried a similar key. It made sense that a chaplain would. I spent a great deal of time in the infirmary. But who else had one? Who else had access to the victim the night before he died? Walking down the long hallway toward the infirmary, I passed the nurse's station, where two nurses sat. 
one white, one black, both elderly and overweight. Each had an inmate seated across from her and was laboring to check his vital signs. I also passed by two exam rooms. In one, Dr. Mulid Akbar, PCI's senior health officer and one of the chapel's advisors on the Muslim religion, was examining the knee of one of the inmates, who seemed to be in a great deal of pain. At the end of the hallway and to the left, I entered the officer's station for the infirmary. There I found, to both my surprise and delight, the nurse who had helped during the incident in the sally port the previous day. She was seated on the officer's desk, swinging her legs back and forth and chewing gum while conversing playfully with an officer named Straub. She smiled when she saw me. I smiled back. Hey, chaplain, she said. Jordan, isn't it? John, please. But yes. How are you? Better than the last time I saw you, she said. How are you? I nodded. The same? That was brutal. I, I didn't sleep a wink last night. You? No, but I usually don't. By the way, my name is Sandra, but everyone calls me Sandy. Sandy Strickland. I don't think we've met yet. Not really. John Jordan, I said. Nice to meet you, Sandy. You too. I can't call you John. We'll have to be chaplain. Please, call me John. I'll try, but no promises. Never seen you here during the day before, and now two days in a row, I said. You been transferred to day shift? Oh, no. I'm too much of a night owl. I wouldn't be much use around here most mornings. Getting ready for an ACA inspection. Trying to get everything ready. Plus, with what happened yesterday, here to help if I'm needed. We keep trying to get her to join us on day shift, Officer Straub said, never taking his eyes off her. Ignoring his obvious flirtations, she said, I keep thinking about what happened yesterday. It was just so horrible. So much blood. Everywhere. It really got to me. Think I'm going to step outside a minute for some fresh air. You want to join me, chaplain? Sure. The fresh air was far too hot and humid to be refreshing, but it did seem to do Sandy some good. Of course, it could have been the super slim Capri cigarette she was inhaling. We were standing at the back right corner of the medical building. It was a popular designated smoking area, but for now we had it all to ourselves. You okay? I asked. She nodded. Mostly needed a break from Straub. Did you know him well? I asked. She looked confused. Who? Straub? Johnson. Oh, she said, shrugging. Some. About as well as you can know any of the inmates, I guess. He in the infirmary a lot? More than most, but not a ton. Anything you can tell me about him that might help me understand what happened? She shook her head. Not really. Nothing that would explain. How about just anything about him? He was kind of small, slightly effeminate, got bullied, and worse, I think. I nodded. I heard he had a pimp. Really? Who? Jacobson. She nodded. He's been in to see us a few times. I try to avoid him. He's unbalanced. So he was 
That really pisses me off. The shit this place does to people. A little sweet guy like Ike. Wish I'd have known. Jacobson. Sick of... Tell you what, if you're not a criminal when you get here, you'll damn sure be one when you leave. Her eyes glistened, and I was touched by her compassionate anger. We were silent for a moment, Sandy enjoying her cigarette, me enjoying the day. Wait, she said. They were together in the infirmary the night before Ike was killed. Anything happened between them? How did Jacobson wind up in confinement, and Johnson in the back of that truck? She shook her head and shrugged as she gazed into the distance. I really don't know. It was a relatively quiet night. They were the only two we had in the infirmary that night. In the early morning hours of Tuesday, five maybe, they started yelling at each other. And before too long, Jacobson was on top of Johnson, punching him in the face. The officer on duty, Officer Hardy, wasn't at his desk. So Captain Skipper and I broke him up and separated him. He told him to go back to bed and he would forget about it. I've never seen Skipper do anything like that before. Told him if they did it again, he was going to write them a disciplinary report and send him to confinement. Where was Officer Hardy? I asked. She shook her head and gave me a frustrated expression. I have no idea where he goes. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. What days does he work? I asked. Hardy? Thursday through Monday? But Monday night was his last night for two weeks. He's on annual leave now. Pretty convenient, huh? Why was Captain Skipper down here that night? I think he came to take a statement from one of the inmates involved in an incident earlier that night. But he wasn't here. Which inmate? Thomas, I believe. Anthony Thomas? Yeah. You know him? I've worked with him some. Where was he? No idea. But he's in confinement now. Skipper locked him up for not being where he was supposed to be. How long did Skipper stay? I asked. Not long at all, she said. Left when he couldn't find Thomas. What happened next? Not sure. They must have started fighting again. Officer Hardy had Jacobson locked up. Strange he didn't have them both locked up. I went back up to my desk to finish some paperwork, and that was the last I saw either of them. Until the truck. Who else was in the building at that time? Let's see. Nurse Anderson and our inmate orderly, Alan Jones. I believe he was gathering the trash and cleaning the exam rooms. What about the trash? When is it picked up? Early in the morning, usually. I'm not really sure. Our orderly always gets it ready and puts it out here to be picked up. Is that orderly here now? I asked. Yeah, I think so, she said. Mind if I speak to him? I asked. Not at all. Let's go see if we can find him. She took one last long draw on the stub of her cigarette and tossed it into the ashtray. We found her orderly, the same old black man I had denied a phone call earlier this morning, in one of the storage closets near the back. She told him I wanted to talk to him and that we could use the staff break room around the corner. I could tell he didn't want to, but he swaggered toward the break room nonetheless. This won't take long, I said, when we were finally seated at one of the tables in the staff lounge. He didn't respond. Sorry again, I couldn't let you use my phone this morning. He shrugged. I just want to know how you normally gather and take out the trash down here, 
and if you did it any differently on Monday night or Tuesday morning. I gather it up before I leaves every night and puts it near the back door where you just standing with Nurse Strickland. Next morning, I picks up any new trash and sets him outside the dough. Officer and inmate from inside grounds comes by and picks it up and takes it out. Is that how it happened Tuesday morning? I asked. He shook his head slowly. Already told the inspector. Gathered it all up and put the bag in the back hall. Then Nurse Anderson comes say she need me to clean up a spill in the exam room. When I come back to put it outside, it was done gone. Nurse Anderson with me at the time, she can tell you. Trash wasn't outside the door, neither. No sign of the truck, neither. Did you see the inmates in the infirmary that morning? I asked. He nodded. Anything unusual about them? No, sir. All three were lying there in they beds, sleeping. All three? I asked, the surprise in my voice obvious. Who else was there? He hesitated and looked confused. Johnson, Jacobson, and Thomas. What time were you in there? Can't say for sure. Got no watch. I come in at four. Wasn't too long after that. You see Jacobson and Johnson fighting around five? He shook his head. I was still gathering up the trash and cleaning up. I was all over the building. I walked back to the nurse's station and called the trash officer who I had been in the back of the truck with yesterday. Officer shut. Yeah, it's Chaplain Jordan. Just wanted to see how you're feeling. Better, he said. A lot better. Thanks. And thanks for your help yesterday. I just freaked. I understand, I said. I'm surprised you're back at work so soon. Just trying to stay busy, he said, sounding a little defensive. Try not to think about it, that's all. Wasn't, it was just an awful accident. I just keep wondering how he got into that trash bag in the first place, I said, trying to make it sound like an idle curiosity. That's a good question. I wonder that too. I usually pick up the trash from every department early in the morning. They set it outside their back door, and me and an inmate pick it up. But yesterday, there was no trash outside of medical. Really? Yeah, I parked between medical and laundry like I always do. I usually stay in the truck, but I had to ask the laundry sergeant about an inmate who used to work for him, so I walked over with the inmate. When we came back with the bags from laundry, medicals were already gone. They must have put them in themselves. They ever done that before? I asked. Sure, but not very often. And usually we see that old black inmate because he's so slow. But we didn't see anybody. Why all the questions? I'm just trying to figure out exactly what happened. I'll tell you what happened. A dumb inmate tried to escape and became a dark meat shish kebab. Everybody's saying what a great thing I did. Hell, I'll probably get officer of the month. And if anybody has anything else to say about it, they can say it to my lawyer. Your lawyer? I asked. Hell yes, he said. I've been grieved and sued so many damn times by these dumb sons of bitches I had to get one. What kind of world do we live in? A bunch of stinking inmates can make me need a lawyer. 11. Every 11 minutes, someone in the U.S. died of AIDS. In Florida's state prisons, those with HIV outnumbered those in Florida's free population two to one. Many inmates came into the system infected with HIV. 
primarily the result of shared needles and unprotected sex. In the close confinement of prison, it spread rapidly. Tattooing, drug use, unprotected sex caused HIV to spread inside prison the way the virus was designed to. Only six state prison systems in the U.S. distributed condoms. Florida wasn't one of them. With these thoughts bouncing around my head, I had gone in search of Sandy Strickland. I found her in an exam room, inventorying supplies. You got another minute for me? I asked Sandy Strickland. Of course, she said as she turned around to face me, her blue eyes sparkling, even under the dull fluorescent lights. Come in. When I closed the door behind me, she looked a little surprised. What is it? You okay? I sensed genuine concern. She was a good nurse. I had come to the right place. I wondered if you might... This is harder than I thought it'd be. Take your time. It's okay. Whatever it is, we'll figure it out. I found out today that the inmate who was killed yesterday, the one whose blood I was covered in, had AIDS. She nodded slowly. I can't quit thinking about it. Can't concentrate. Just keep thinking I might have been infected. Oh, you poor man, she said. I know exactly how you feel. Blood is such a scary thing these days. I come in contact with bad blood all the time. It scares the hell out of me, too. Should I be scared? I asked. Unless it penetrated your skin or splashed into your eyes or mouth. Even then, you'd... The officer freaking out splashed it everywhere. I can test you. Give you peace of mind. But I wouldn't worry. Chances are good you weren't infected. I nodded. Thank you. It helps just talking about it. I can test you privately down here. Nobody else has to know. Thank you. Thank you so much. She motioned for me to sit on the exam table. As she worked around me, I thought how ironic it was that I might be infected. Not only had I been in a married monogamous relationship until recently, but I was extremely careful inside here every day. When she was finally ready to draw my blood, she put her delicate hands on me, patting, squeezing, caressing, comforting. She even held my hand as she withdrew the blood. How long does it take? I asked as she busied herself labeling the vial of blood and disposing of the needle. We'll have to do a series of tests. The first one will be back in about a week, give or take. I'll sneak it in with some other tests. I'll call you the minute I know. And then we'll do another test in a few weeks, and another in about three months, just to be absolutely certain. You're an excellent nurse, I said. How did you wind up here? You mean, in prison? She said with a smile. Old sour sister Mary Margaret said I'd wind up in prison one day. I worked for a doctor in Tallahassee, and we got involved. Needed to get away. Tallahassee's loss is our gain. Didn't mean to get into all that, but you're easy to talk to. Maybe we can do more of it outside of this place. Over coffee or something. 12. 
Were dogs used to search the area around the barn for Candace? I asked. With one of the few free moments of my day, I sat down at my desk and called Kimmy to ask her more about Candace's case. Yeah, she said. Search dogs. Prison's canine unit. Not cadaver dogs. Do you think we need cadaver dogs too? Because that's way above my pay grade. You'll have to talk to your dad about that. Did the search dogs turn up anything? Alerted on the car, of course, she said. Then tracked a path around it. Hit on a place on the ground where they think she may have fallen down or been put down for a while. I hate to even say it, but if she was raped, it could have been there. Or if she was killed, it could have been where her body was laid before it was moved. Then they continued to a place back toward the road, and that's where the scent ended. I thought about what that might mean. So, she said, whether he killed or abducted her, it's probably where her body went in another vehicle. Or, I said, if she staged all this, or was involved in it in some way, it could just be where she walked over and got into another vehicle on her own. Oh, she said. Well, hadn't really considered that. So, how do we find out? What's next? There are some things that need to be done, I said, that will require that are of an official nature. And I really don't want to do anything official. Are you willing to do that part? Sure, she said. As long as Cecil or your dad don't find out. I'm just a lowly deputy and a girl to boot. I can't be caught doing man's work, particularly detective man's work. We'll make sure you don't get caught, I said. Do you know who owns the land the car was found on? Yeah, a man from Alabama, he inherited it. Says he hasn't been down here in years. Just keeps paying the property tax on it because it meant so much to his dad and granddad. Cecil said he took a look at him, and there just wasn't anything there. Do you know, or have y'all looked at who lives on the back side of the property, or across the street, or anywhere around it? I think it'd be worth finding out, just in case he used it because it was familiar to him, or close to where he lives. Most criminals stick to what's familiar. I'll find out. Cool. And I really think we need to take a look at Steve's and Candace's phone records. See who they've been talking to. Do you know if Cecil got those? They weren't in the file, so I'm guessing he didn't. I don't think so. Can you figure out a way to get them without anybody knowing? I asked. No, she said. Not really. Okay, I said. I'll give that one some thought. Oh, but I did just find out something very, very interesting, she said. Oh, yeah? Remember me telling you about that Mason Kelly chick who attacked Candace in the parking lot of the bar for trying to steal her loser boyfriend, Kevin Turner? Yeah. Well, guess what? Though a good bit younger than her, Kevin is one of Candace's exes. Really? And rumor has it, he may actually be her son's biological father.